Father, as we turn to the Scriptures, the Holy Word of God, we ask for your blessing. Come, Holy Spirit, illuminate these words to our minds and hearts and affections, and give yourself all the glory for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please be seated. I have a text this evening, and uh, while you're looking for that text, it's in Titus uh, chapter 2 and verses 11 through 14 on page 998 in the Pew Bible and 1294 in the Children's Bible. Now, let me thank um, the choir, and that was a beautiful piece. I heard it once before, I think. Um, but uh, you covered all genres tonight, from melodic to off-key and taverner and the whole, the whole thing. <laughs> um, we, have, we have a very special music department here at the church. And um, I've preached in hundreds of churches, and I've heard hundreds of choirs. Um, but none of them live up to ours. And uh, I mean that. I truly do mean that. And uh, one of the things I'm going to miss is sitting just a few feet away uh, from this uh, wonderful choir and Thomas and uh, Dan Cole and others and some wonderful soloists that we have here. And uh, you get used to quality music and, and you forget to take a breath and realize just how marvelous it actually is. It, it helps us worship, takes me to another realm. Um, there's something about music that uh, can, can project a transcendence and, and take you beyond this world. Well, thank you for coming out. It's, it's amazing what free food will do. I'm, I'm told there's a huge spread uh, over in the Family Life Center. I popped my head in as I was coming in, and there looks, looks as if there's a throne. Uh, there's a dais and two chairs, and it looks like I'm going to be de-crowned um, tonight. There's going to be a ceremony. My crown is going to be taken away. And, um, but thank you for coming out on this inclement uh, night. It means a lot to... Uh, Rosemary and myself, um, we're not going anywhere. Columbia became our home. Uh, within a matter of months, um, Rosemary and I were driving around Columbia, and I said, you know, this feels like home. Um, it's an easy city to live in. It's not complicated. And um, you complain about, about 5 o'clock traffic, but you should go to L.A., as I have done on several occasions, and it's taken me two hours to drive just 20 miles. Um, yes, this is home. I, I will be suitably absent for a season. I'm going to be preaching in Mississippi. Uh, a good friend of mine called me a few months ago and said, um, come and live in the manse in Yazoo City. Yazoo City is a pop has a population of about probably 10,000 at most. And I said, Bob, I don't want to live in Yazoo City. No one wants to live in Yazoo City. <laughs> but, 
But I will fly in on a Saturday afternoon and, and fly out again after I've preached. How about that for a season? So I'm, I'm going to be doing that. And then um, I have uh, six and a half, no, eight and a half thousand books, uh, which occupy four rooms uh, in the ministry building. And uh, I've donated all of these books to the study center. Uh, that Richard Mounts began uh, a few months ago on Pendleton Street. It, it's, it's, an it's an ideal um, thing because I'm going to go there and, and study and write. Rosemary doesn't want me home all day long. <laughs> she, she's, she said I can come home at three, <laughs> but, but not, not before that. So I have plans to preach and, and write and do some things that I, I've neglected. I'm, I'm not a DIY person, and I doubt very much that I'm going to learn how to do that in retirement. Now, let's get to our text. So what do you do? What, do you, what text do you choose for an occasion like this? A great text. There's a book. I have it in my library somewhere. It's called A Hundred Great Texts. It's meant for preachers. And the challenge of the book was that every preacher should preach on at least these hundred texts before he dies. I have, I have preached on this, but it's probably 25 years ago that I preached on this text. and I, I, I didn't have any notes from that occasion, but I, I remember preaching on it. And it's a wonderful text. Let me read it to you. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is a great text. This is a text that tells you in a few verses the entire narrative of Scripture from beginning to end. This is a Christmas text because it talks about the appearing. The grace of God has appeared. It's a Christmas text. I had no idea when I was uh, retiring. I, I gave you a, a, a runway that would last until June of 24 if necessary. Um, but I'm glad it's Christmas because I'm going out with all this wonderful Christmas music. And thank you for the honor this morning of hearing my doggerel words set to such beautiful, beautiful music. Let's think first of all of the appearance of grace. He's talking about the coming of Christ into the world. He's talking about the dawning of the new age. 
the New Covenant, the New Testament. What was promised in the Old is fulfilled in, in the New. And he talks of it as the appearance of grace. Paul must have thought a great deal about grace. This is his last letter along with 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy and Titus were probably written roughly about the same time, weeks, months before Paul was executed. And he's writing uh, to Titus and giving Titus some final instruction, but he, he tells Titus that what keeps him going every day is grace. Spurgeon had a favorite hymn. It went to the tune of Ilkley Moor Batat, but I won't sing it, but it's a, it's a Yorkshire tune. And uh, grace, tis a charming sound, harmonious to the ear. Heaven with the echo shall resound, and all the earth shall hear. Grace, tis a charming sound. What is grace? Well, we typically define grace as unmerited favor, but grace is not an abstraction Grace is not an idea. Grace is a person. Who has appeared? Jesus has appeared. Grace has a face. It involves the incarnation and the obedience and the death and burial of Christ. It has a face. We are saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I have to say it one more time. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked look to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And this message of grace, Paul says, is a message of salvation for all people. For all people. For every race, for every tribe, for every color, for every nationality. It's the same message that is offered. It's the same message that will save them. It's the same Jesus that will save them. There's a man at the door this morning, young man from Germany. He has come here to study, study at seminary. And uh, Dr. Mark Ross kindly introduced him to me. He wanted, for some reason, he wanted to see me. And uh, he was from Germany. It's wonderful. Um, our missions department, since COVID, have done a dozen, 15 mission trips, taking them to the nations of the world. Because that's the promise that God gave to Abraham, that the nations of the world would be blessed through Abraham's seed. That's the covenant that he made. It's a message for all people. One of the hallmarks of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church is the free offer of the gospel to all people. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The appearance of grace. He's thinking of the turning of the Old Testament into the New Testament. He's thinking of the coming of Jesus to Bethlehem. He's thinking of the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, and he, he encapsulates it by saying, grace appeared. And Paul is saying, I saw it. It was an epiphany. That's the Greek word. It was an epiphany. I saw it. And it was marvelous. It was wonderful. Do you remember the first time you experienced grace? I do. It was December the 28th, 1971, at about 11.15 at night. And I had flopped down on my knees. I knew I was a sinner. And I asked forgiveness, and I knew immediately that my sins were forgiven. I tasted grace, and it was it was wonderful. Secondly, there's the training of grace. Come as you are is the message of the gospel. But when you receive the grace that is in the gospel, the demand is everything you've got. The entry fee is nothing at all. But the annual dues is everything you've got. Now, we don't have time, but we want to see here the shape that grace enforces. And it's the shape of godliness. And it's a Pauline shape of something that is both negative and positive. There's a renouncing of ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. There's a mortification and there's a vivification. There's a putting sin to death and encouraging the fruit of the Spirit. Saying no to self. And yes, saying no to the old self. And saying yes to the new self. And what does that new self look like? Self-control, uprightness, godliness. But you could put that in a different way. The new self looks like Jesus. It's Christ-like. You look into the face of Jesus. You look into his character. And that's what grace is doing in your life and mine. Restoring us to that perfect state in which Adam was first created. We're introduced by grace to a school of virtue. Zealous, zealous, Paul says, for good works. Well, there's the appearance of grace and the training of grace. And then there's the cost of grace. And Paul 
It says in verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. There's the appearance of grace in the coming of Jesus, but there's the appearance of grace in the second coming of Jesus, in the glory, in the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. When you see this word glory in the Bible, you should think of it as God's majesty and presence put on public display. That's why the wise men bowed and worshipped the infant Jesus, because they saw the glory of God put on public display. At the second coming of Jesus, the whole world will bow and acknowledge the glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Now that little preposition for, huper in Greek, has profound consequences. He gave himself on our behalf. It's a preposition of substitution. He did what we could not do. He provided a righteousness that we could not provide to satisfy the demands of divine justice. He became our substitute. God made him sin for us who knew no sin that we might be reckoned the righteousness of God in him. He gave himself for us on our behalf as our sin bearer and substitute to redeem. Now, there are many New Testament words to describe the atonement, but this is one of the major words, to redeem, to pay the ransom price that sets us free from bondage, bondage to sin. He paid the debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and Sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed, His child forever I am. A people of His own possession, Paul says. A people of His own possession. We belong to Jesus you and I. We are his. We are his family. He's our elder brother. We are part of the people of God. He owns us. He's paid the price that sets us free. I'm saying this is a great text. It deserves a two-hour exposition. We don't have two hours. But it's one of those texts that encapsulates the entire message of the Bible, from Genesis 3.15 to the final verse of Revelation 22. It's a gospel text. It's a Christmas text. It's a text about the appearance of grace that came at Bethlehem.
and will come again at the second coming of the Lord Jesus. Because glory awaits you. If you're a child of God, if you're one of these whom Jesus possesses, glory awaits you. A glory that cannot be described, a glory that is ineffable, a glory that is transcendent, because the struggles that you face in this life are an indication that you don't belong in this life. You belong in paradise, in heaven. And as creation groans and travels together, waiting as birth pangs for the regeneration of all things, so you and I long with great longing that God would eventually take us home to be with Himself because we have an assurance. And the assurance is He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify to himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Well, that's my prayer for you, for this congregation, that it might be a congregation that is zealous for good works, a congregation that understands and loves the gospel and is consequently zealous for good works. Now, let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Thank you for this uh, gospel text. Thank you for the appearance of grace. We have beheld the face of the Lord Jesus in the pages of Scripture, and it is a thing of beauty. And we pray that as a response to that grace, we might give ourselves away, not to serve sin, not to serve self, but to serve you and to be like you, to be godly, a people zealous for good works. Come, Holy Spirit, and so grant it for Jesus' sake. Amen.